0: Hello, before we start with this episode, here is my familiar reminder that we are preparing for a mailbag episode. After I've interviewed my 99th guest, then in place of the 100th guest, I will instead put together a little panel to discuss and comment on questions and ideas sent by our listeners, which means you. So uh, hit us up on Twitter at Serpayan News or on LinkedIn or in the YouTube comments if that's your thing or indeed via email to podcast at if that's your thing. And if I like what you say, then our audience and our guests will hear about it too. I do already have uh, quite a number of intriguing questions and challenges, so I'm already excited to get on with it. Anyway, speaking of getting on with it, on with today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. I'm Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Natow. Dr. Natow is an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at Hofstra University in New York State. She studies higher education policymaking and she's written and jointly written several books on that subject which I will, of course, put details of in the show notes. She's also interested in the ways evidence from qualitative research is understood and used, and specifically the impact that kind of research has on policymaking. So, hi, Rebecca. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being here. So Rebecca, you study educational policy in the US. And uh, in particular, as I understand it, you study how policy is made and the factors that influence it. So it won't be of any surprise to listeners that I want to ask you about the role of evidence and research in that, which I know is also an interest of yours. Um, But it will also perhaps be of no surprise to listeners that I don't really have the first idea what even are the interesting research questions in your area. So (laughs) Could I invite you to start by explaining what you study and uh, what's interesting there?
1: Yeah. What my research has centered on is how the US Department of Education, which is a federal agency, the United States government, how that agency makes regulatory policy. So regulations are basically the rules that an agency will make to implement a statute that is passed by Congress, by the legislature. Um, It's done in the agency, so it's a bit less public than congressional debate and votes, which are very public. And it's done within the executive branch, which means that whoever the president is has a lot of influence over it because the president is the one who appoints the the policymakers in the executive branch. What's happened recently in the United States is that Congress has not been able to reach agreement on a lot of high-profile issues. In higher education, we haven't had a higher education act reauthorization, which is the big statute authorizing a lot of federal higher ed programs, we haven't had a reauthorization since 2008. It's several years past due for reauthorization, and what we're finding is the two parties in Congress cannot um, cannot come to an agreement on major issues relating to higher education. So what has happened is for presidents to get their higher education policy agenda uh, passed. They're going through their policymakers in the executive branch, and that includes this rulemaking process of the U.S. Department of Education.
0: Okay. So is this something that's always happened, or is this process new or changed now because of the deadlock in Congress?
1: Yeah, so it's always happened. There's always been a rulemaking process in the federal agencies. In the higher education space, it's happened more frequently in recent years relative to the amount of legislation that's been coming out because Congress has been gridlocked on higher education issues. So it just makes the executive actions such as rulemaking more uh, significant to education policy in the United States.
0: Yeah, presumably most stuff that used to be done through legislation is now being done legitimately, I presume, through executive action?
1: Well, yes, and the question of legitimacy is interesting because there are federal statutes that govern how the executive branch is allowed to make policy. Um, And of course, as lawsuits get filed, then the federal judiciary will get a chance to weigh in and determine whether these agencies are overstepping their authority. But until that happens, this is how the agencies make policy, and it's legitimate policy that people have to abide by.
0: Right. Okay, so a fast-changing area. Okay. So tell us about your what you're working on here.
1: So one thing that I wanted to understand about this process is how research is used in the process. Um, This is an interesting study, an interesting case study for how research is used more generally in education policy making because of the nature of what the higher education rulemaking process is. Um, First of all, in the US Department of Education the Higher Education Act does require the department to use a process called negotiated rulemaking uh, when creating regulations about federal student financial aid policies, which affect tens of millions of students and thousands of institutions every year. So negotiated rulemaking is when The department brings different representatives of different stakeholder groups to Washington, D.C. to sit in a room and basically negotiate the language of a proposed rule. This, unlike a lot of agency policymaking, is a public process. It's open to the public. And in recent years, it's also been live streamed over the internet. So people can view these negotiations and they can comment on them in the press. They can submit comments to the Department of Education in writing. So it's more of a public process than rulemaking typically is that doesn't involve negotiated rulemaking. So I wanted to see how research is used in this process because, number one, agencies are required to have a reasoned basis for the rules that they adopt. That's part of federal law. And so I thought there was an opportunity for policymakers to bring research into the process and cite that research as the reasoned basis behind the different regulations. Also, because of negotiated rulemaking, universities are a stakeholder in the Department of Education's policymaking processes and will participate. Representatives of universities will participate in negotiated rulemaking and in the notice and comment period. And because universities are research-intensive institutions, I thought it would be a good opportunity to study how a policymaking process that centralizes these research-intensive institutions is using research in that um, policymaking process.
0: Well, so this is interesting then, because... You've described a process which seems to have two main inputs, one being research, as you say, evidence that, that's required to be used, and the other being discussion and negotiation with stakeholders. Correct. So this isn't rare, of course, I would say in policy making, but in a sense, it's kind of complicated here because those two come together, like your stakeholders mostly are also research institutions. Yeah. And then... I wonder if they're doing two different jobs. They're representing themselves and their own stakeholders or whatever, fighting for their own interests and and what they want out of the process. And at the same time, or perhaps separately from that, which is what I want to ask you, they themselves also are the sources of the research that's supposed to play into the process too. And one can imagine challenges there. How do these things interact? What's your experience?
1: Yes. So it's, it's a very good observation. And one of the findings from my research was that the representatives of universities that are participating in this process are not the same people doing the research at the universities. So you might see, for example, a government relations representative. Sometimes you'll see a college president Um, participating in the rulemaking process, but they're not the ones conducting research. They have faculty who are conducting research. They might have research centers and full-time researchers on their staff, but those are not the staff members who are participating in the rulemaking process.
0: Right. Yeah, but are they representing the research or are they representing their Institutional perspectives, like lobbying, rather than giving science advice.
1: Right, it's definitely representing their institutional perspective. Um, one of the things I found, which which I thought was interesting, because universities are research-intensive organizations, was that they still weren't using that research in this process. They were definitely presenting the position, the political position, the political interests of their universities.
0: So it sounds a bit weird. You've got, like you say, a government relations person or a college president or whatever who who back home in their institution has got a bunch of research that's being done. That's right. But it's not making its way into the process it applies to, at least not via them. So then, is their research making its way into the process in other ways? If so, how?
1: Um, My study found that it was infrequently making its way into the process. So there were other factors um, that the Department of Education and other stakeholders were sort of citing and relying on in the process of making these regulations. Often it was experience, uh, bringing those stakeholders together for purposes of negotiated rulemaking, they were talking about their own experiences, experiences of the people who they represent, whether it's students, whether it's different types of institutions, community colleges, for-profit, higher education, large universities, what have you. They were talking about their experiences, and that was really resonating with the policymakers, There was sometimes the presentation of data, and that's separate from research in that data is basically a snapshot of statistics or some sort of usually numerical information, but not part of a larger study, not part of a systematic designed study to answer a particular research question. So data was something that came up a lot in the rulemaking process, but it wasn't research. When research did come up in the process, it was often presented by stakeholders who saw that research as valuable in supporting the political position that they already held. And it was often research that came from um, the federal government itself or from some sort of nonprofit organization, often a think tank or an interest group, and not research that was coming out of a university-based research center or a peer-reviewed academic journal article.
0: Okay, so that's really interesting. So So, okay. Tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like there is no, as it were, classical science advice. Nobody representing the view of the evidence objectively in this process. It's purely a stakeholder-driven process, even though it's formally supposed to be based on
1: evidence. So that's really interesting. and An interesting question, because in recent years, the department has made a point of bringing on a research consultant into this process to provide information about data, data use, and to answer those technical questions about research. But by and large, it's a process of stakeholders who are there to present their political position to the department and often would bring in research to support that position, whether or not the research came from a reliable source, whether or not the study design was valid. It was basically, I have a study that says that my position is correct and here it is. And then someone else would bring in a study that said something different. And that was how research was used in the process.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I I can immediately imagine, as you say, there's the question of whether the research is good quality, reliable in the first place. You've also got the question of whether it actually says what it's being represented as saying, and indeed, who assesses that. You've also got different bits of research being used by different people to argue for different points. It all sounds very, well, politicized.
1: Yes. So that was that was something that I found really interesting um, in this political use of research in the rulemaking process. Um, there was a regulation called the Gainful Employment Rule, which basically was an accountability regulation specifically for for-profit and career-focused higher education institutions. One of the metrics that was included in the Gainful Employment Rule during the Obama administration, during President Obama's administration, was an 8% threshold number, which was basically something that came from the mortgage industry that said if somebody is paying more than 8% of their total income and debt, then they have passed a threshold. And the Department of Education used that as one of the metrics. If an institution's students were using more than 8% of their income to pay off their student loan debt, then that was going to be considered too much and it would count against the institution. Um, in order to support that metric – the Department of Education under President Obama cited a particular research report, and then a few years later, when the Trump administration came in and repealed the gainful employment rule, they cited that same research report to argue that the eight percent threshold was not a good measure because later in the paper, the people who wrote the paper said that there wasn't really a good basis. they questioned the veracity of that eight percent number for um, considering debt to income ratios and student loan debt so That's an example of the exact same paper, the exact same research paper being used um, for different perspectives, one to justify a metric and another one to repeal it. So on this podcast,
0: we often talk about science advice institutions, which are set up to provide an input of evidence into policymaking in like an objective way, which which is designed actually partly specifically to avoid some of the complications that come from relying purely on interest groups and stakeholders to bring in the evidence. And in this case it sounds a bit like a more like a free-for-all. I mean, everyone wants to show that their perspective is evidence-based, but there isn't that institutional input to kind of even it all out. Yeah. So then I wonder who is refereeing the whole thing? Are the policymakers competent in your experience to assess and make judgments between the different claims that are being made about what the evidence says?
1: So so typically in the rulemaking process, there is a mediator, a professional mediator who sort of um, oversees the process in terms of the rules that are going to be governing the negotiations and recognizes different policy actors who are present at the table to speak. And so they sort of referee that part of the policymaking process. As far as the research is concerned, apart from recent rulemakings where the department has brought in a a researcher to sort of serve as a consultant or advisor in this process – It's really just the people at the table trying to make sense of the research themselves. And if they don't have a lot of training or a solid background in research methods to understand what it is that they're seeing, they don't necessarily have a a sufficient basis for determining whether a particular piece of research is valid or not.
0: Huh. Yeah. I have to ask, this doesn't sound like an entirely ideal situation. How is it viewed in general? And do you have any ideas about how it could be improved?
1: So, so that's a, a really great question as well, and I get asked that quite a bit. I can um, imagine. <laughs> people in in the higher education policy space um, have complained a lot about negotiated rulemaking. They've argued that the deck is sort of stacked in favor of the Department of Education, and it absolutely is. The rules for the rulemaking process definitely favor the Department of Education to do whatever it wants, for example. Um In this process, in order to reach an agreement, there has to be unanimous consensus on the language of a rule. So that's really tough to get all these different stakeholder groups to agree on the language of a proposed rule. But one of those stakeholders is the Department of Education. They have their own negotiator who has to agree to the language in order for there to be consensus. And even if they are the only one objecting, then there's no consensus, and then the department gets to write whatever rule it wants. So there's a lot of perspective that the department has, all of the power in this process, um, and that it's more of a formality than an actual policy making process. And then of course there's the issue of who are the special interest groups that are coming to represent their various stakeholder positions in the process, and how do they get selected to be part of this process? So there's a lot of complaining about that. However. As I mentioned before, usually there's not this much transparency in agency rulemaking. When negotiated rulemaking is not used, the agency basically gets to write the rule on its own behind closed doors. And yes, it goes out for notice and comment and there could be a legal challenge, but you don't have that level of transparency that you have with negotiated rulemaking. And on top of that, my prior studies of the negotiated rulemaking process found that it does make a difference. The Department of Education at the end of the day is going to do what it wants to do with these policies, but they do listen to the stakeholder groups that come and present their side of the story. And it does have an influence, um, a moderating influence, even if a a modest one, on what the Department of Education would have done otherwise if they hadn't participated in this negotiated rulemaking process. So overall, I think it's it's not a perfect process by any measure, but it's better than what we would have otherwise if we didn't have negotiated rulemaking.
0: Right. So it's like, be careful what you wish for. Remember, it could always
1: be worse. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really clear example
1: of a process where
0: evidence is used, but it's used non-objectively. It's used in a very intentional, politicized way.
1: That's right. So there's a lot of literature that has basically categorized um Forms of research use into a few different categories. There's instrumental use, which is the use of research to solve a problem. So say you're a policymaker and you run into an issue and you say, I need to go research this and find out what to do about it. Um, If you're using research in that way, it's considered instrumental use. There's conceptual use, which is research that's sort of put out there for people to hear and think about, and it sort of settles in their mind. And sometime later, they remember, oh, I read a study about this once, and they make a decision based on that. Um, And there's imposed use, which is when a policymaker comes in and says you have to use evidence-based practices. So now when you're designing your, for example, teaching practices, you have to have an evidentiary basis for them. So those forms of research use are relatively well settled in the literature on research use. What I found in my study of the rulemaking process was in addition to those forms of research use – there was politically infused research use. So putting a political angle on all those other forms of research use, there's political instrumental use, which yes, a policymaker ran into an issue and wanted a solution to it, but the solution that they found was one that necessarily supported the position that they already held. So it's that political use of research infused with instrumental use. Uh, Political conceptual use, I found, was when a think tank typically or a special interest group would put research out there and have people talk about it and maybe call up the Washington Post or another news outlet and have them report on it. So it would get in people's minds and then they would start to believe the findings and use those findings in making a decision down the road. And then there was political imposed research use. I mentioned earlier that the Department of Education has to have a reasoned basis for its regulations. So that's a form of imposed use. You have to have some reasoned basis for this. But what I found was the policymakers were going out Um, and finding a reason basis, but it was always going to be something that supported the position that they wanted to take anyway. So there's that political form of research use, again, infusing with these other forms to make these blended or hybrid forms of research use.
0: Do you think in this process, do you think there's, is it completely impossible to imagine a model where instead of this completely stakeholder-driven negotiated political approach, you have a component where the policymaker asks for evidence, some kind of neutral evidence synthesis, and then weighs it up and then proposes a draft decision, which that then gets consulted on and discussed. Or are we a long way from that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I, I, I'm having a hard time um, envisioning that happening. I think we're, we are a long way away from that, um, just because I mean, it happens
0: the- in other areas. That's why I asked. I mean, it happens in other areas of policymaking.
1: Sure. And I think, you know, I, I never want to say that something's impossible and never going to happen, so I won't say that. But um, just given the political nature of this process, what I've seen about how how many interest groups spend their time, their energy, and a lot of money trying to influence this process, I don't see how a um, policymaker could come up with a completely research-based solution, put that out for comment, and not get some sort of political influence either in the feedback or... Um, even at the outset, on on putting that research out um, in the first place. there's It seems that there's too many political factors involved for a process to be so evidence-based that it's almost politics free. Mm.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I wasn't necessarily imagining that, of course, but I think there are plenty of areas of policymaking, again, which are highly charged politically and controversial even. And so it, it wouldn't be that it was kind of technocratically determined based on an evidence review and nothing else. It would just be that the evidence would have its own channel separate from the political influencing and lobbying.
1: Right. And I think, um, while I still think that we're a long way away from that, I do see some encouraging steps along the way. So for example, I mentioned before that the Department of Education has brought in a researcher as an advisor or consultant to the negotiated rulemaking committee. That's something that we've seen the past few years that we didn't see many years ago when I first started studying this process. So I think that's encouraging. That's a step in the direction of of wanting to understand the research and wanting to have an expert there to help the committee understand study design and other questions of that nature.
0: Very good. And thank you for mentioning study design, because that gives us a a way to segue smoothly into the other area that I want to ask you about, which is the different kinds of studies. You've looked at how policymakers use qualitative research or don't use it as the case may be um so i'd love to ask you a bit about that but my first question i'm afraid is rather more basic i think perhaps most of us have an idea of what that means the difference between quantitative and qualitative research like one is about numbers and the other one kind of isn't Mm -hmm. but i guess you have a slightly more sophisticated take than that
1: Yes. So qualitative research is the study of data that are not quantified or are not easily quantifiable. So things like language, texts, audiovisual materials, and data of that nature. Whereas quantitative research does quantify data and look at statistics and numbers um, and things of that nature. Also, the purpose of qualitative research is not to test a hypothesis or to examine some quantifiable variable such as test scores. Instead, the purpose of qualitative research is to understand why or how something happens instead of just whether or not it is happening, or to build a theory or contribute to theory rather than to test theory. And qualitative research can also complement quantitative findings in a mixed method study. So for example, if a quantitative study determines that a particular program or intervention is effective, such as if it's an educational intervention that is raising test scores, a qualitative component can help us understand why it's effective or how stakeholders have responded to the intervention or program or how it has been implemented.
0: Great. So that's useful. You didn't mention anything about a difference between objectivity and subjectivity which is something you sometimes hear.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because I think the concept that quantitative research is, is just naturally more objective than qualitative research is not actually true. Um, as, as we know, and there've been studies that have shown this, there is bias in in quantitative research, the types of questions that you ask in a survey, for example the answer choices that you might provide, even the number of answer choices. There's been research that has shown um, that a scale, if you have a scale of 1 to 10 versus a scale of 1 to 5, that that can have some bias in it that biases the results. Um, On the other hand, qualitative research, um, researchers will often embed procedures into their data collection and data analysis practices to remove as much bias as possible. So even though you're looking at um, factors that aren't numeric, you're still looking at them from a standpoint of a researcher as opposed to someone who's um, just getting people's various perspectives and opinions on something without having some sort of systematic purpose or design behind the study. So my position is that no research, no kind of social research at all is completely objective and that um, there is subjectivity in both qualitative and quantitative research.
0: All right, gotcha. So you said a bit about the role of qualitative research in the process of doing research, framing questions and building theories and getting context. Yes. Which is great for academics. What does it offer to policymakers?
1: There's a lot of value that qualitative research can bring to policymakers. First of all, in understanding the actual experiences of the policy implementers and the policy targets. How are they experiencing the policy? Are they encountering any challenges, perhaps some unanticipated consequences that policymakers should be aware of? Policymakers will also want to understand how and why policies work or why they do not work, and qualitative research is is valuable on asking those how and why questions. Um, There's also the question of fidelity to model in policy implementation, meaning that a policy is being implemented in a way that policymakers had envisioned? And if not, why not? Is there something that's inherently unworkable about the the model that it was envisioned? Or is there some shirking on the part of uh, policy implementers to not implement the policy the way that it was envisioned? There's also value to understanding the complexities and challenges that exist in the policy world. As you mentioned before, the context is very important to understand and how that can influence how policies are implemented and how they're received. So that's something else that qualitative research can help policymakers understand. And because qualitative study designs are by their nature flexible, researchers can adapt their studies in the field um, in response to real-time changes in the context. And that can be important in the fast-paced world of policymaking. So for example, when the COVID pandemic happened, researchers and um, educators had to adjust to a more remote environment, not just for education, providing instruction in schools and in universities, but also for undertaking research. You couldn't be in the room anymore with people and observe them um, in person. But qualitative study designs um, build flexibility into their designs. So in that way, Um, qualitative researchers can continue on with their studies, even in the midst of uncertain and unexpected circumstances, in a way that quantitative studies, which have a more uh, rigid design, cannot do.
0: Okay. So do policymakers avail themselves of all that?
1: Well, what I found and what other studies have found is that qualitative research is not used frequently at all in policymaking. Studies have shown that policymakers tend to prefer quantitative research to rely on when they're making decisions about policy. You had mentioned that there's a perception that quantitative research is more objective than qualitative research. That was something that my study found was a pretty widely held perception among the policymakers in the higher education rulemaking process. I had people tell me that quantitative research was just numbers, just data, so sort of apart from a human being who is actually designing the study and interpreting the data, Um, policymakers will often make statements to the effect that randomized controlled trials or RCTs are the gold standard. This was a phrase that I heard repeated in my own research. It's a phrase that's used a lot in policymaking in the United States. So the further away a study design gets from being an RCT, it's perceived as less valid, less reliable, and will therefore be relied upon less by policymakers.
0: Okay. I think you hear that a lot in Europe too. And you hear it not just from policymakers, but also frankly from scientists. Yes. And I'd say not only from natural scientists, even or or like medical researchers, but also more broadly, you'll hear people say, of course, there are all kinds of research designs and many of them are useful or valid, but the gold standard when you can use it is always the RCT. What's that getting at? Where does that idea come from?
1: That's a good question. Um, I do think it's related to when you have a, a large sample size, so you have a lot of um, data points in your, in your sample, and you have uh, processes, research processes put into place that can generalize um, and control for extraneous variables, that that's just considered more scientific. And I think policymakers widely hold that view.
0: So then the obvious next question is, would you dispute that so I understand, of course, there are all kinds of things you can't find out with an RCT. It can't give you certain stuff, like you said. But the gold standard concept, as I understood it, is it's more that if you can find a way to frame your research question in a way that's amenable to an RCT, that's always going to be better.
1: Well, I think it's, it answers different research questions. So if there's a particular research question that you know it lends itself to an RCT, then use an RCT. That's going to be the best way to Answer that particular question. But there's other questions that you can never answer with that type of study. And I think those are the questions that are being neglected when you hold up the RCT as the gold standard. Um, for example, um, wh- how is this policy being implemented? What are the unintended impacts that are happening? How are the people who are the policy targets or the policy beneficiaries? How are they? receiving the policy? Are there things that are happening sort of on the ground that aren't fitting with what policymakers intended? And are those sort of street-level implementers making adjustments in real time so that the policy works um, for the beneficiaries or the intended targets, but not in a way that policymakers first envision? You can't find those things out through randomized controlled trials.
0: Yeah, and those are broadly open questions. I mean, you can't ask an RCT a how or why or... What on earth's going on here? Type question,
1: right? It's it's you know an RCT is not going to be able to answer any open-ended questions. But I think more importantly, when you the the very nature of unintended policy consequences is that you don't necessarily know what they are until you go into the field and start talking to people who are working with the policy every day. Um, when I do qualitative research, I always, every single time, have findings that I did not anticipate, and they sometimes they end up becoming a central finding in my study. So having those open-ended questions is very important um, in this type of research where part of the purpose of the research is to go in and find out what's happening and to not have those sort of preconceived notions about it. You want to know what's really happening and it might be something that's not anticipated.
0: Which I think sounds like the kind of thing that should be absolutely invaluable to policymakers, especially in evaluating their own success or the success of their predecessors. I think so. So, okay, then how can we persuade people to take notice of this yeah. stuff? How could we improve the situation?
1: Right. So one thing I found in my research is that policymakers and policy actors more generally are persuaded by people's stories. When um, a stakeholder comes in and tells their story, sometimes a story might be shown in a documentary film. Sometimes uh, an interest group might gather testimony from different stakeholders and put that together and, and, and show Bits and pieces of it to policymakers, so where qualitative research I think has a real strength and can resonate with policymakers is when they tell a, when these studies tell a story um, of what's happening on the ground. So case study research is really good for for doing something like this, um, analyzing cases and telling the story of a case. There's also qualitative narrative research, the the nature of which is to collect and, and um, tell stories of the people who are experiencing the phenomenon. So I think that with stories, qualitative researchers who present their findings in the form of a story. It's something that will resonate with policymakers. That's one way to get policymakers' attention and to get them to read the research and maybe even talk about it when they're discussing the policy. It's something that I have figured out through my own research, and since I found this in my study, I have seen it happening um, with policymakers as well. The stories resonate with them. If they can tell a story, for example, of a student who had student financial aid debt and it ended up, you know, really affecting their life in a negative way, they can tell that story as an argument in favor of, for example, canceling student loan debt. Same thing with special education students. Um... What I've found is that policymakers hear the stories from the students themselves and from their families, what's happening to the students in the schools, whether a policy is not really reaching this student, not really helping them access their education. And that's something that policymakers have looked at and considered when making their decisions about policy details and whether to um, adopt new policies or or, um, amend existing ones to make them more effective.
0: This makes sense. But, you know, if I'm a policymaker and I have given to me one or three or however many testimonials from students about how they've been burdened with debt and it's caused them financial struggles later in life. I don't know whether those stories are based on good, high quality representative research or cherry picked to put across the point of view of whoever is lobbying me at the moment. And I can really see why a policymaker being responsible might say to that, yeah, okay, very good, but can you show me the figures? In other words, give me the quantitative stuff, please. So I mean, how do you address that issue that policymakers are just less likely to trust qualitative stuff or take it at face value?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I agree that that is an issue. I would push back, though, on the assumption that the, a quantitative study is necessarily based on a robust piece of data. There could be cherry-picked audiences to receive a particular poll. There could be particular wording in a poll that is very biased. So I would want to see what was that study based on? What were those numbers? What was the sample size? If it was a survey, what did the survey look like? How was the sample selected? What was the response rate? I'd want to know all of those things to know whether it's a valid quantitative study.
0: Fair. So what are the questions to ask then about qualitative research to assess robustness?
1: Right. So that's that's a great question too. And I think that part of why qualitative research as opposed to just getting cherry-picked stories can be persuasive is because when a policymaker is presenting the story and somebody tries to challenge it, saying, Well, that's, you know, just one story. It's anecdotal, that's not a real study, then the policymaker can say, Well, actually this is part of a study and here's what the researcher did to you know, enhance validity of the study. They used multiple data points. They used different procedures that are identified in the methodological literature as enhancing trustworthiness of qualitative findings and can show people who are skeptical the methodology of the particular study that the policymaker is presenting. But I also think it's important for policymakers to understand research methods. Um, this is something that I learned in my own research of research use in the rulemaking process is that policymakers often don't have any background at all in research methods, and they're basically going on what they've been told is a valid study and not necessarily their own knowledge of what makes a study valid. So I think it's important for policymakers to be educated about what is research, and under what circumstances is research valid or is it not valid, and of course, qualitative research as real research, qualitative data as data, what that means, and similar to quantitative studies, what sort of procedures can be put in place to help ensure the validity of qualitative findings?
0: Yes. I think that's great advice and I think it's actually a great parting shot because our time is unfortunately up. But thank you so much, Dr. Rebecca Natal, for giving us a window on uh, an intriguing area of policymaking where evidence is used in an interesting way and, uh, and lots of food for thought. It's been fun.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The Science for Policy podcast is created by CEPEA. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruczuk. SePAia is a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And this last bit is particularly good.